Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Uh, Brother Derek, how are you doing today, sir? Uh, yeah, good. So I went to the temple yesterday for an endowment session. Oh. Did you so hear you saw that the changes? Yes. You heard that there's adjustments, yes. right? I did hear that there were adjustments. Um, yeah, but uh, I haven't been, but you've been. So uh, you want to talk about that experience? Yeah, I'm going to have to be real quick because... I've only been once, so I have not absorbed, and we don't have time for all the details. I probably need to go back a a few times to figure out things. But there are some important changes. Uh, One is that Jesus is more prominently centered and more explicitly pointed to, Mm -hmm. right? Some of the things that were were, um, were symbolic of Jesus, but it wasn't explicit. Now it's made a little more symbolic. I love the fact that there's more of a focus on Jesus. And I love that there's more, that was, which has been one of my criticisms, right? Uh, now they fixed, or they're, they're, uh, I'm not saying they fixed it, right? Because that's probably not the right word to use. But I think mm-hmm. they are coming closer to my vision of what it should be. Same thing with love. The word love is mentioned now for the first time ever in, a, in an ordinance, Mm-hmm. Uh, at the beginning, it says that the endowment is an expression of Heavenly Father's love for us. I'm like, mm-hmm. wow, that's so peaceful and reassuring. Mm-hmm. And uh, the covenants to love God and love neighbor are mentioned explicitly in the, or the commandments to, to love God and love neighbor are incorporated into the covenants now for the first time, which I think is very important because it, it, there's no covenant to love the church as uh, as an institution, right? Mm-hmm. There's no, it's very much focused on the Savior. Um, and I like this idea that the closer we get to the Savior, the less the church can get in the way. <laughs> if we as individuals... That's a bar. If we as individuals shorten the distance between us and Jesus, there's not room for anything, anyone, the mm-hmm. church, church leaders, policy to get in the way. Now, that's not excusing the problems, right? Mm-hmm. But that's one way of reclaiming power in this case. And one of the most important changes is that the prohibition against loud laughter is now gone. Well, which is well, one of the things well, I was wanting to change. Like they're <laughs> they're like they they must be following me on Facebook and then and and realizing I'm ahead of them on so many of these changes and then they're like <laughs> they're, they're catching up to to where I've been. But yeah. so now loud laughter so I'm going to be doing a lot of loud laughter. Okay. And uh, our fans are going to be laughing at my jokes, and they're going to laugh at your pain. Well, yeah, that's what they're really laughing at is my pain. <laughs> it's less your jokes, more my pain. And I wanted to say one thing about changes. Our okay. church, ironically, doesn't do change well. I think part of it is the mindset of, well, we're all set. Everything's been restored. The church is perfect. We have everything we need. Um, we can be certain about what we know. Like we can be certain that this technology works. The ceiling, the ordinances. We're gonna be together again. Like we're all set. We, we're. I'm like, no, that's not how it has ever worked. Um, and I just want to briefly. Oh, if that's a. That's probably the biggest lie ever. Briefly, I briefly want to talk about President Woodruff's 1894 General Conference talk on the law of adoption. Okay. And he, this is uh, up in, from the time of Joseph up until 1894, Latter-day Saints typically, uh, because at the beginning there weren't multi-generational uh, 
family. Mormon families, yeah. yeah. So uh, when people joined the church and their ancestors were not ever members and never had a uh, chance to join, many cases what would happen is they would seal to people who know who they knew accepted the gospel. So they would seal them to Joseph Smith or other leading members of the uh, church in these law uh, through the law of adoption. They would literally seal men to men. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in a sort of an adoption, and then they would be grafted on into Joseph's line or some other line. And then President Woodruff changed that, and he said, he said, you know what? This we've been we've been doing it wrong all this time. Like this is this something hasn't been right. We haven't had the full truth on this, but we've literally been doing ceilings wrong. I've been unsettled about this. I haven't been satisfied with the way we've been doing it. From now on, we're going to seal people um, to their uh, literal uh, uh, parents, whether that's lit- biologically or adopted. Like if they were raised and had an adopted uh, parents, you can steal that seal that that too but he's like and he had to really coach the people along and saying look this is a change and it's gonna sound it's gonna look like we haven't been doing it right all this time and like in a way we haven't been doing it completely right but we're we have more light and knowledge now and and uh, now there's some things about woodruff's talk that are quite interesting that we don't do the same way now. Woodruff said in this talk that you should seal through your own lineage as far as you can go back in your genealogy, and then once you go as far as you can, then you seal that person to Joseph Smith. Uh, so now they're all sealed within the Latter-day Dispensation. Even if, yeah, um, but that's not what we do now, right? Uh, another thing he said is, well, people will object. Well, why... If I seal myself to Joseph Smith directly or whatever, then I know that I'm all in. Whereas what if my grandfather was a murderer or something and Mm -hmm. is not going to be exalted? Like, why should I seal myself to him? And here's here's what Woodruff said. He says, okay, well, if you find in your genealogy someone's a murderer, just skip that generation and seal it to that, skip the murderer and seal it to the murderer's father. Uh which is not what we do now. Mm-hmm. But you can tell that he's playing around with this. He's like toying around with these ideas and he's like trying to do things. And here's the other thing he said is what to do about single women because Woodruff said, I found 400 single women in my genealogy. And uh, presumably they could be sealed as a daughter to their parents, right? But they're not going to be sealed as a wife to anyone. So guess what he did? What did he do? Well, guess. Hmm. So, okay. What we, we'll tell, well, maybe it's not a good guessing game, but he sealed them to himself. He sealed them to himself? Yes. He, he took 400 of his, uh, his uh, female relatives who never got the chance to marry anyone and seal, sealed them to himself. Which was probably not what we would do now. But my point is, like, I'm not trying to trash Woodruff. What I'm saying is, your average, your average member of the church has this great assumption about what the leaders know and what they don't know. That they're so far higher than us, and they know exactly what they're doing. We just got to trust them. And on one level, that's true because if we believe that they're prophets and apostles, they do have the capacity to 
receive revelation. That doesn't mean they're always right. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean they're always ready for revelation. Doesn't mean they always ask with real intent. But it looks like they're making it up as they're going along. And that gets to one of these two truths. Number one is, yes, it is true. They are making it up as they go along. But the second great truth of that, remember, we always have to uh, prove contraries, right? Yeah. By proving contraries, truth is made manifest. The other, con- the other contrary to that is that that's not a bad thing. That's what mortality is. We learn line upon line. We study it out and see if it's right. We experiment on the word and see where it goes. That's Alma 32. So, of course, church leaders are going to be in the place, in a, in a situation where uncharitably you would say, well, they're just making it all up as they go along. But you could say, well, that's just what this life is like, and that's what church leadership is like. They're not robots. They're not fax machines. Um, they've got to do the work. And they will be playing around with things and tinkering and making adjustments. Uh, and that's kind of how I frame some of these adjustments that we have seen in the temple. So that's all. I, I've wasted a whole bunch of time. but <laughs> Hardly a waste, friend. What did you, you, what do you, uh, you probably, well, you probably don't have many thoughts until you see the changes yourself. But do you have any reactions or comments on the idea of, of, change in the church and why because i didn't grow up in the church why people in the church just automatically think the leaders have it all figured out when uh, they don't you know and having, they never have joseph yeah, never had it all figured out but anyway you what, what do you think i mean i was just gonna say having grown up in the church just it it is just in a it's just a grand assumption that is just made by everybody around us so we kind of adopted as well that the brethren you know, are basically our generation's Moses, and we just don't ask the questions. Like, it makes things really nice and easy and convenient for us, but, like, at some point, everybody is going to have to, like, I mean, for lack of a better phrase, think for themselves. But Mm -hmm. to answer the question, we just, you know, we just grow up around adults that are more or less thinking the same thing. They are making that assumption that the brethren are inerrant, infallible, or they don't make mistakes, or that, you know, they are, you know, the Lord's, representative on earth and they have unfettered access to them as you said a fax machine or a telephone or whatever just we had that kind of access mm-hmm. so if you're growing up with that mindset you just don't think to uh you just don't think to question it really i think part of it comes back to the individual security and comfort of certainty they want to know that someone bigger than them has has a has it all figured out and they can just kind of right rest and, and, and not easier. do the work and not do and not think about it and just say well the brethren are right and that's what we want we want to like not have to think about the really hard things like we want the answers to the questions of the soul for lack of a better word and in some cases mm-hmm. we want to be validated in you know the way we view the world and like unfortunately sometimes that is validation of our bigotries and uh you know, a lot of times we see more aggressive clinging to the brethren's right moral rightness because some people are holding really tightly to those bigotries. Because, you know, if the brethren are wrong about that, there are multiple deconstructions that are going to have to happen, uh, you know, of the religion and also of themselves when it comes to their ideas. Like, it's just too much work to have to deconstruct our own bigotries or deconstruct what we thought was an inerrant leadership in our church. Mm-hmm. So I think there is a uh, goal to preserve comfort or preserve a sense of moral rightness um, by clinging to the brethren like that or clinging to the church like that. Mm, okay. Well, 
Anyway, yeah, I just I have mean, I just have questions primarily, perhaps because I haven't uh, been to the temple yet since the changes were announced. But I do I am primarily curious primarily mm-hmm. curious about what has inspired the change or mm-hmm. where it came from. Well, did you hear about the black woman in the temple film? No, I did not. There's black women in the temple film, yes, and nobody a black, is talking about it. Uh, there's a black woman in the temple film. She's she's so. Here's what happened: is the second half of the film is now where the ordinance workers used to demonstrate certain things. Uh-huh. Now those things are demonstrated by people on the screen. Oh, so one of the veil workers is a black woman, and she shows you how to go through the veil. Oh, ain't that nothing? I'll have to check that out. So, yeah, cool. That that sister, you probably know her. I mean, is that a yeah, stereotype? I, say, that I was wondering if I know her. Like, but that was my immediate next thought. I was like, I wonder if I know her. <laughs> right. I hate. I hate to say that all all black people in the church know each other, but it, it yeah, might be. It's, it's really hard to find black folks in the church at this point. At least for me, it's really hard to like not know at least who people are. Like at this point in my life, just. The network is like thanks to social media, like those network that the the community is already very small. Mm-hmm. So it's like very unlikely that I have at the very least never heard of this person, whoever it is. Well, I'm sure you'll you'll figure out who it, who it is and what the story is behind that. Looking forward uh, to that. Oh my speak- gosh, that is so cool. Yeah, yeah. It it's uh, congratulations. We're making Black <laughs> History during ha- Black History Month. <laughs> All right. Wow. Well, go ahead. Go ahead, church. Um, but yeah, anyway, um, like I said, just questions and I'll synthesize those later just for the sake of time. Mm -hmm. The, but, but sort of this idea of spoon feeding, like wanting the brethren to spoon feed everything to us or, 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 or the brethren wanting God to spoon feed everything. That's not how Moses did it. But that's how he wanted, Derek. That's how he wanted. That's not how I want it. Well, yeah, that's not how you want it because that's where you are in life. But a lot of people, but I think it's about. It has to do with like what kind of moral development do you want? Like, if I'm a robot, I don't learn anything. I don't grow. If I'm if 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 it's like I'm an an eternal child. If someone's always making the decisions, I'm never gonna 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 grow. I mean, this is literally what the temple film is about. Adam and Eve could have stayed in innocence and never experienced mortality, but no, they decided nope. We gotta face the hard stuff. We gotta learn to take responsibility. We gotta take initiative. We've gotta go and um, take the longer way around and uh, and actually develop. And didn't and we fight a our- whole war in heaven over this? Like, I feel like this is agency yeah. that we're like letting hang in the balance or letting be taken away from us just by letting right. somebody make like, all the decisions for us. Like that whole idea, this idea of unfailingly and un. Like it just undermines agency to me that mm-hmm. we would just trust the brethren with it, with everything, right, or just trust correct. the church with everything. I right. feel like we fought a whole war in heaven over this, and this kind of defeats the purpose a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Um, but speaking of that, I think that ties into the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain because Jesus is calling us into a higher way of thinking that isn't just rule based or isn't just uh, you know principle. Or it, it it now like you have to actually have moral development, not yeah. just superficial checklisting, right? Yes, yes. You have to have we're called to a higher and deeper ethical standard that in, involves mm-hmm. moral development, which is why Jesus taught saying, you know, be per, be perfect, 
Right. As your father in heaven is perfect. But anyway, so let's talk. I wanted to just briefly say, oh, briefly, that is the biggest joke ever. (laughs) Two things real quick. One is, and this is a longer conversation that I'm not going to have now, but it has to do with anti-Judaism. Because some people would say, oh, look, let's read these antitheses. Jews bad, Jesus good. Now, Uh there's a couple of problems with that. One is that Jesus was Jewish. He's having an internal conversation within Judaism. And that's different than him condemning or critiquing Judaism as a whole, right? Yeah. When you look at the evidence, there there's other rabbis uh, saying that some of the similar things to Jesus. You can see this in the in the in the Mishnah in the Talmud. There's other rabbis disputing these things and making some of the same points. So it's not there's something wrong with Judaism. There's something wrong with the human condition, and you get this in any tradition the stuff that Jesus is critiquing. So let's not make this about Judaism. And one good resource is the Jewish annotated New Testament. Um, So if people have access to that or want to say, well, what what does it look like when you engage um, Jewish sources uh, and have commentary on the New Testament written by Jewish authors uh, and Jewish scholars, then that's the Jewish annotated New Testament. Anyway, I wanted to say something brief about uh, just the literary uh, nature here. So okay. here in Matthew 5 through 7, we've got the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the first of five collected literary teaching blocks in Matthew. And these are called sermons or discourses. I like pairing the first of these discourses, Matthew 5 through 7, with the last one, Matthew 24 and 25, where you get the eschatological discourse and then the... Uh, then these other parables about the the second coming, uh, the sheep and goats, the parable of the virgins, and I love the fact that in the Matthew twenty five sheep and goats judgment, we're not judged based on how we treat powerful people, mm. how we flatter the leaders of the church, or how we honor them, or adore them, or or worship them, or treat them as celebrities. We are judged based on how we treat the marginalized, mm-hmm. and in the end. We will we will be surprised. Like people who think people people are gonna be surprised is what gets counted as faithful and what doesn't. <laughs> Flattering the brethren is not gonna be counted as faithful in the end. Right. It's gonna be did you take care of those who had the least power, least resource? Hmm. Anyway, so in many ways that's parallel to the Sermon on the Mount because that also turns Absolutely. expect expectations upside down especially with the beatitudes Mm -hmm. so we've also got the sermon on the plain in luke 6 because in in the lucan setting there's a there's a flat place and then we have a parallel in third nephi 12 through 14 the sermon at the temple which uh, appears to me to be a derivative of the king james matthew uh account so we will Mm. see see how that goes uh not now though but uh, <laughs> people may want to see these parallels. So I want to say the, the, the Sermon on the Mount or Plain or the Temple is so important. We get it three times it is, for, for nearly two millennia. It has been a central summative teaching. It doesn't have all of Jesus' teaching, and there's important things that aren't there. But we can look at that as a great moral witness uh, and what's, what's there and what's not there. Like, we don't have a lot of church flattery. In fact, the word church does not appear in the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain. Um, and 
it, there's very little about the institutional church. There's also very little about what to believe. Most of the Sermon on the Mount is about what to do and how to live mm. and how to be in the world or how we're blessed. Um, we have a problem in our church where we seem to be more devoted to churchianity rather than Christianity. People mm. are Christians because they're members of the church, right? That the church has this package and 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 Jesus is just a part of that package deal. You just got the church and the church is everything and Jesus is like a, a little accessory mm-hmm. that makes the whole church work or something. Mm-hmm. No, for me it's the other way around. I am a member of the church because I believe in Christ. Mm. And anyway, so I want to hear what you have to say about and let's let's do this in the in doing Luke 6 first and then Matthew 5 and see okay. how that works. What do you have to say about uh, Sabbath? Well, I wanted to start with uh you know these particular these two stories at the beginning of Luke 6. I'm going to start from uh uh verse 3 about it. And at this point Jesus is, you know, going through grain fields and then the disciples are like picking uh they're plucking heads of grain. And then uh, some of the Jewish folks wa- watching are like, why, why y'all doing that? Like, that's not, that's not okay. That's not lawful. And then Jesus answers in verse three, have you not read, this is the NRSV translation, by the way, have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which, is not, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and gave some to his companions. And then, then he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. So what, what I like about this particular passage is Jesus informs them that not only did they not understand the intention of the law, but they also didn't understand the Bible very well. And I like, like even just saying that I I see some immediate echoes with just your whole aesthetic, Derek, like a lot of what we talk about or a lot of what we critique in the church seems to be like born from this idea that, you know, people just don't seem to be reading their Bibles or understanding them very well. Like Jesus even points to an to to a Hebrew Bible passage. He points to 1 Samuel 21, verses about 1 through 10, where uh, David and his men eat the bread of the presence, even though it was only intended for the priests. But as God's anointed, um, you know, God's anointed servant, he was authorized to eat the bread because of extreme need. Uh, if this was true in David's case, it was probably even more so in the case of, you know, Jesus, uh, cause Jesus was Lord of the Sabbath as he, you know, says in verse five. And by saying this, Jesus is indicating that he knows better than the people critiquing him, how the Sabbath is to properly function. He's also making a not so subtle affirmation of his deity. Uh, and you know, since God had given the Sabbath command, Jesus would have to be equal to God to consider himself Lord of the Sabbath. And uh, beyond this, Jesus is affirming that it is better to feed hungry people or to eat when you're hungry than it is to like honor the Sabbath or whatever. Like it's, it's like a critique of this uh, scrupulosity I was talking about earlier, it feels like. And we're going to see that again with this uh, second story, the man with the withered hand in uh, verses six through about 10 or so or 11. Yeah, that's what it looks like. But um, what's going on here, it says the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would cure on the Sabbath so that they might find an accusation against him. So they're already acting in bad faith. And then verse eight goes on to say, and I love this section. It says, even though he knew what they were thinking, he said to the man who had the withered hand, come and stand here. 
He got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to destroy it? After looking around at all of them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So like, there's a lot here. It's the... It's the determination of these folks to just find something wrong with Jesus, even when he's doing good. Jesus's well knowledge of the bad faith that these people are acting in, their whole attempts to catch Jesus in a moment of, you know, weakness or sin. But like what I what I really have noticed here is just that Jesus, all he did was ultimately serve somebody else. He valued you know, a human life. He healed somebody. And, you know, rather than be grateful or to rejoice in that healing, these people were immediately just bothered by Jesus simply because he was not, you know, falling in line with them or, you know, their definition of faithfulness or their uh, definition of lawfulness. That like that should have resulted in rejoicing by anyone who witnessed the miracle, but they were filled with rage. And, you know, that's, that's a problem. His point was that if one chose not to do good to someone by alleviating their suffering, it was evil. Like that's we we talked about that just last uh, just last year when we were going over uh, the Hebrew Bible the the Hebrew Bible. I forget which narrative it was, but we like had a whole conversation about the purpose of the law, which is to serve other people. I think it was the whole Leviticus nineteen thing, but it just really harkens uh, back to the purpose of that law that extends well back into the Hebrew Bible. And just to like affirm what you were saying, Derek, uh, this isn't so much a critique of um, um, Judaism as much as it is the people who decided to, you know, obfuscate the law or just do a little too much with it. Like um, there's just that temptation and that whole tendency for religious leaders to add to God's law to create a new definition of religious um, obedience or lawfulness or religiosity in general. And I definitely see us doing that in the church today. We have people being ostracized for like not living Mormon standards of respectability, even though they are nowhere to be found in our theology or in our sacred texts. I see Jesus critiquing that here. And um, even still, Jesus is critiquing it right in front of them. He knows what is going on in their hearts, but he still does the brave thing and alleviates somebody's suffering anyway. And then it like ends with that little unfortunate footnote or epilogue of these people still being mad and being more interested in trying to catch Jesus and trying to trap him than they are rejoicing in the miracle that was done. So there's probably more that can be extrapolated from that, but um, I don't really know where to go with it or nor did I really focus on that. But do you have any thoughts on what Jesus is communicating with these narratives or why Luke included them? Any, anything of that sort? Yes. So um, one of the, the challenges is to put yourself in first century Judea or Galilee. You're occupied by Rome uh, Jewish national identity is significantly threatened, right? Because you're you're occupied and 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 you're struggling to preserve your identity, your way of life. And one of the biggest pieces of that identity was the Sabbath. 
The Sabbath was meant to distinguish Israel from other nations, to uh-huh. symbolize loyalty to God. This is a significant commandment. It is, you know, one of the ten big commandments. Um, it bore the Sabbath bore the uh, the death penalty in Exodus, right? So, so like this is this is real. Like we're not trifling with something li- uh, little. So for the, this cuts to the heart of Jewish identity and Jewish loyalty towards God. So when Jesus is appearing to violate the Sabbath, this is outrageous. And the other outrageous piece of this is, is who is this dude? I don't know if you've ever heard about the ice cream truck analogy that a lot of missionaries use. They say, oh, if you get pulled over by an ice cream truck and they write you a ticket, are you going to pay the ticket? And we're like, no. (laughs) But this is literally what Jesus is doing. He's coming in like an ice cream truck. He has no authority. He has no standing. He has no institutional power. He has no priesthood. Right now, of course, the author of Hebrews is going to later tell the story retroactively that 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 there's this Melchizedek priesthood, which doesn't come from lineage. But that that's not what people were operating with in the institution. Right. Mm -hmm. Jesus was not a descendant of Levi. He was literally not a priest historically. So but after we, we can call him a high priest and stuff. But but he had no standing. He had no authority, He had no anything. So he's literally coming in and making changes and people are like who are you he's like you're you're in this ice cream truck so the com- those two things combined seem to uh to show how outrageous this was and i think it's it's a really good hope and i think you brought out a good point with the um caring for a person because the whole point of the sabbath was to be a blessing to us it's mm. not like the Sabbath was created as an ultimate entity that, you know, has feelings and love and whatever. No, and we were created to serve the, the, the benefit of the Sabbath. No, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath, as Luke said, uh, as Mark says. This is at the end mm-hmm. of, of Mark chapter 2. The Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. I would say... And that's literally true because the Sabbath was made for rest so that people wouldn't have to work. Um, it was given to our benefit. So if the Sabbath is ever used not to our benefit, well, then it's not binding because the whole point, you have to look at why that rule was there. The rule isn't there just because we not we need rules, right? Mm-hmm. So you can not only can, but you must break the rule if you understand the purpose of the rule. If the purpose of the rule is to be life-giving, to people, and of course it's okay to heal people on the Sabbath. That is Jesus's logic. But if you're going based on a checklist or a, dare I say, a covenant path, right, framework, then you're going to miss the whole point. And I would say just like the Sabbath was made for people and not people for the Sabbath, I would say the thing, same thing to the evangelicals about the Bible. A lot of them tend to worship the Bible as the good, and people are here to serve the Bible. No, the Bible's here to serve us. The Bible was made for people, not people for the Bible, hmm. right? If the Bible is not beneficial, it's not binding. And I would say the same thing about the church institution, the apostles and the prophets, they're here as a blessing to us, hmm. right? They're not an end in themselves. Right, right. I think that is a cultural imbalance that Jesus is correcting. 
I did want to, and then at the, at the here's something interesting. Uh, one of the reasons why it's important to learn Greek, perhaps, uh, at the end of Coda, so at the end of this narrative of the healing, uh, we get a third story about the Sabbath in in Codex Bizai. Codex Bizai is a fifth century uh, manuscript of the Greek New Testament, and there's an additional narrative added at the end of Luke six. Four, right at the end of verse four, we have this additional material that is found apparently in no other manuscript, and I don't even think it's found ever in any English translation. So people don't know about this. But here's what it says, and I'll be translating from the Greek right here. On the same day, that is the same day as the the healing, so it's the same Sabbath, right? On the same day, as he was beholding someone working on the Sabbath, he said to him. Man, if you know what you are doing, you are blessed. But if you do not know what you are doing, you are cursed and a transgressor of the law. Let me say this all over again. On the same day he beheld, or as he was beholding someone working on the Sabbath, he said to him, Oh man, if you know what you're doing, you are blessed. But if you do not know, you are cursed and a transgressor of the law. I find that is so interesting, right? Like if you know the principles, if you know what you're doing, if you know why the principles are there, if you know what the exceptions are, well then you're fine. But if you are working on the Sabbath not knowing what you're doing, well then you've then you've got a problem. So, now this this mayor this may most likely doesn't go back to the historical Jesus. Now it possibly could, but in the 5th century, if this is our first attestation of this, then we've got a problem. But my point is, um, it's interesting to engage the textual tradition, and this goes back to, like, the temple changes, right? We've almost got five standard works. We've got the four standard works, and then we've got the temple endowment, or the temple rituals, as sort of a fifth uh, standard work. Now that one can change. Right, and up until the invention of printing, these these other standard works, or, or at least the biblical text, can change too, and that that changed as people copied it, and um, and folded in their wisdom or or what they what they recall. So, so yeah, I just wanted to name that that incident. I want to go on. Did you have any thoughts about that? No, nah, just I needed to get the name of that text again because I this is the first time I'm hearing about it. Oh yes, Codex Bezae, B E Z A E. It is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has the letter D. So manuscripts. Uh, this is manuscript D. Hmm. Uh, in the in the footnotes. Okay, and I heard the way you were reading. You were you were translating that directly from the Greek. Mm-hmm. Yep. All as right, far as I'm gotcha. no, I'm aware, this has never appeared in any English translation. Gotcha. Any published translation. Okay, thank you. But it's it's listed as a footnote in my um, critical text of the New Testament. Gotcha. So I want to go on and briefly talk. Oh, briefly. That's the biggest. That's the beginning. <laughs> the biggest running joke ever. <laughs> briefly talk about the t-shirt. The um the apostles. So we've All got right. the ordination. We've got the call of the apostles in Luke chapter six. I just want to. We've got the the eleven, and then we've it ends with Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This is Luke six verse sixteen, and I just want to talk about. Jesus' track record in picking apostles because our our uh, 
our culture has this near idolatry of, oh, an apostle. We need to give them, you know, this pampered treatment and the best meals and the best everything and the and the like all this amazing celebrity esque stuff. And I'm like, well, that's not what Jesus gave his apostles. But I really wanted to talk about Judas because Jesus's quote failure rate, if I could say that, is one out of out of twelve, right? Judas failed, right, and um, betrayed Jesus and never was restored. Hmm. Uh, in a, in a sense, all of all of the apostles, except for maybe the beloved disciple, ran away. Maybe that's a fail. Um, Peter made some big mistakes, cutting mm-hmm. off the the servant's ear, trying to protect Jesus. And this is a point Ben Shalati made. Look, apostles literally will hurt people in an attempt to defend Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, I don't want that kind of defense. <laughs> so just think about that, um, especially with the queer uh, queer thing. Apostles will be tempted to do to, to bring out muskets, to bring out swords, and Jesus is going to be like, no, put that musket back in its place. <laughs> um, That's a great point. But the thing, uh, but but Peter denied Jesus. Peter was called uh, Satan by Jesus. Like, just because someone's an apostle doesn't mean that they have magic powers, mm-hmm. right? I I don't have a lot of magical thinking. I'm not. I'm a product of the Enlightenment. My view is, as a as a product of the the scientific worldview of the Enlightenment, it's it's very hard for me to see supernaturalism. Um, it's just not so. In my view, I can either choose to believe that nothing is magical or that everything is magical. It's mm. very hard for me to see that some things are magical and some things aren't. So I don't think that the uh, the apostles have any magical powers that anyone else doesn't have. But let's talk about these apostles. So Jesus' failure rate is one out of uh, 12. Now let's look at the Latter-day Apostles since, they were, uh, since the first quorum was uh, ordained in 1835. Since 1835, we have had 102 apostles in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Can you believe that? 102 apostles. No, I cannot. That's wild. Guess how many of them were excommunicated? Jeez. Like pretty much nearly all of the first 12 were, but uh, how many? 13. Thirteen. It was about it was it was about half the, of the first twelve, mm-hmm. um, and then there's some others, but there were thirteen out of a hundred and two apostles, right? That's over ten percent. Yeah. Right. So people, our culture has, oh, they're an apostle. They have to get everything right, right? Or they 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 can't fall away or everything. And I'm no, come on, look look at look at our track record. The Beyond the Block co-hosts have a better track record Ooh. than the apostles do. Ooh. If you ta- if you look at the average apostle versus there's two of us and neither one of us have been excommunicated, neither one of us have left the church. We are we are literally on average more faithful than the combined status of the 102 apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So everyone out there, you need to stop worshiping them. Stop adoring them. You can respect them and sustain them, right? Just as you would respect and sustain me and my calling. But they're not the be-all, end-all of the church, mm-hmm. right? They don't have magical powers. They don't have uh, the capac- the, uh, the standing for unrighteous dominion. So, so we need to just think about this. I don't want to disrespect the apostles, but I also want to put this, this into proper balance, they're making it up as they go along. And I don't mean that as an insult. 
if someone says, well, Derek, you're making it up as you go along, I'm like, amen, brother. Like, of <laughs> course I'm making up it up as I go along. That's what religion is. That's what family is. That's what life is. That's what mortality is. That's what the plan of salvation is. That's our whole narrative is caught up in we're here and we figured out, right? That's not an insult. And so, yes, the, the well, anyway, so that's all I wanted to say about um, Jesus choosing apostles. One of them betrayed him. Let's get into the Beatitudes and the woes, because unlike Matthew's account, Luke has perfectly balanced woes. For each of his mm. Beatitudes, there's a woe that flips it on its head. Do you have anything to say about these Beatitudes and woes? Yeah. Um, starting with the Beatitudes, I'm very interested in the choice, because what is notable about the Sermon on the Plain is there are fewer Beatitudes. Uh, there's only about, like, what, four or five of these things, and they're, like, condensed in just a few verses. I'll go ahead and just read that real quick. This is 20 through about 24. Looked up to his disciples and said, and like also pay attention to these short beatitudes, these few beatitudes. Notice which ones Luke chooses to include and who they are focused on because that 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 matters to me. Right. Uh, it's think, aff- comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. Quite. It's like quite. literally uh, like Jesus scooped us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is starting in 20. Blessed are you, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So poor. 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. The hungry. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Those who are mourning. So three marginalized groups, three people who are in need already. 22. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account mm-hmm. of the Son Amen. of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. This is you, Derek. Leap for joy. For surely your reward Mm -hmm. is greater in heaven. For that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. And then we get to the woes starting in 24. And these parallel the Beatitudes we just went over. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. So parallel woes and all the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Plain are focused on the marginalized. I want to point out who Jesus is speaking to and for here and blessing. He's blessing the oppressed, the mistreated, the destitute, the outcasts. Like he is specifically focusing on those individuals Jesus is. So like, can you, I often reference the Beatitudes when I'm trying to make a case for saying a phrase like Black Lives Matter. Like, can you imagine somebody piping up after each Beatitude and be like, Blessed are all lives, Jesus, or blessed are the rich too, Jesus. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the proud too, Jesus. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who ate, Jesus. Like, it just don't make no sense. Mm -hmm. Like, I can only imagine how Jesus might handle something like that. Uh, Blessed are all lives. But anyway, he might say, be like, okay, did I say those are the only lives who are blessed? Like, if you've been paying attention to what Jesus has been saying and doing, you know he's here to remind those on the margins, the lost, the left out, the least of these, that they are indeed blessed because those are the people in society that are regularly told that they don't matter, that they aren't blessed, that they don't 
that there's no place for them, that there's no place to include them. Throughout the history of the prophets, Jesus has been telling us to care for the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the poor. That doesn't mean they are all who matter, but they provide, but they need special focus. And what I love about Luke saying this is that Luke understands as a physician the importance on focusing on the part of the body that is broken or that is in need. Like Luke of all people would understand that. And of course, Jesus would understand that too. These are people that need special attention because we are regularly telling them that they don't matter. That is what Jesus is doing here. And he's pronouncing woes on these, uh, sorry, uh, before we get to the woes, did you want to say anything about that? Because I think there's something important to say about the woes as well. Yeah, I think this really resonates with, of course, this is in Luke, so it, it's uh, thematically resonate, uh, resonating with a Magnificat, which we got in Luke chapter one, where this reversal mm-hmm. of fortune, those who are on thrones will be cast down, right? And those who are rich will be sent away empty, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why I hate when people talk about liberation theolog- theologians as Marxists. Like, you don't have to be, okay, this... Here in the first century, Jesus literally says, woe to you who are rich. You don't have to have any influence from Marx to, to say woe to the rich, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Down with the rich, right? Literally Jesus. Literally, literally Jesus. Jesus, right? Maybe Marx stole it from Jesus. But anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe he did. Mark, Marx was an atheist, wasn't he? Yes. Yes. Okay, he was an atheist sure. of Jewish background. Okay. Um. Now, I want to say that these Beatitudes, both here and in in Matthew, are not descriptive proverbs about what happens to be true. Because Mm -hmm. in many cases, the way the world normally works, they aren't true. Like, often the hungry die hungry. They don't get fed. Often um, those who weep don't get comforted. So it's not literally true the way the world works. But something Mm -hmm. new is breaking into the world. And Jesus is announcing it in person as the incarnate Redeemer who is here to um, bring about a new reign, a new way of being in the world. And so that's kind of the power of these is he's embodying them and inaugurating them and letting the kingdom have a foothold in this world and bringing hope to people in the midst of an uh, oppressive situation. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of what I would say about the 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 logic of the Beatitudes. Mm. So that uh, brings us to the woes where uh, Jesus is basically pronouncing woes on those who reject him. Um, Did you notice there's a woe that's on me? It says, woe to you who laugh now. (laughs) (laughs) Woe is me. Woe is you indeed. (laughs) Laugh too much, but... Thankfully, they don't took that out the temple. So maybe that doesn't apply anymore. Who knows? But anyway, who are we talking about? And why are we talking about them? Because like the thing is, I do not necessarily believe that there is an inherent problem with. Okay, what do I want to say here? What, like in the context of the Beatitudes, I, I don't want to say that it's a sin to be rich or to be full or to be popular. But like oftentimes what is dangerous is the accompanying vanity or pride or false sense of entitlement and security that might lead us away from Christian discipleship. Like the rich young ruler, for example, cannot part from his possessions and so lost great blessings and opportunity that came with discipleship. So I want to be very careful to say that it's not a sin to like 
you know, you know, have a comfortable life until that gets in the way of your ability to be a disciple. I think the rich young ruler, or it wouldn't have been important to note that he was rich, or maybe it wouldn't have been, well, I don't want to say that either. What I want to say is that I don't think the problem was that the rich young ruler was rich. I think the problem was the fact that he could not turn away from his riches. There was a, like it says he went away sad because he had great possessions. Like his heart was caught up in those possessions. And that is what Jesus is pronouncing woes on. Again, not a sin to be full or to not mourn or to, you know, be rich. But like we do have a problem when those things become idols. We do have a problem when we put more, when we prioritize, um, comfort over the humanity of other people. And this is like a thing I feel like we regularly critique, uh, you know, here on the podcast, Eric, is this notion that people will prioritize their comfort before, you know, other people's humanity. And uh, that's how we get into a lot of trouble. I feel like that's how a lot of people in the, uh, in the Hebrew Bible text, when we get to all those cycles of, you know, apostasy and, you know, covenant keeping in, uh, in the Hebrew Bible. But anyway, the, that's just, you know, one interpretation or one idea. But, you know, there's other uh, broader ways to read these. You could say that those who are rich in the physical world but have no spiritual wealth toward God, they'll ultimately lose their riches and find that it was meaningless. Uh, those who let this present age fill them with experience uh, spiritual will spiritually lack in the age to come. Those who laugh and find all their enjoyment in this present age, they will be spiritual mourners in, mourners in the age to come. Jesus's followers are not to regard complimentary words from the unrighteous as indicators of God's approval. Like the ungodly spoke well of false prophets during the Old Testament times, as it says in 26, God's people got to remember that divine approval is more important than human praise. So like even still in that you can read a caution against the idolatry of popularity, of comfort, of rich, of riches. Like it's all relevant when we try to, uh, encourage discipleship. Jesus is declaring woes more on the people who cling to those things and less to, you know, just merely being rich or being well off or having comfort. It's the idolatry that comes with these things that I believe he's actually pronouncing woes upon and cautioning against. Uh, what do you think, Derek? Yeah, I I think that that you kind of have to deal with issues of balance and proportion and and context like there's certain cases where being rich will be bad like if your richness is at the expense of exploiting others right mm -hmm. so you can't just make these blanket rules and say oh like out of context right there's if someone is is wealthy but they're using their wealth for god's purposes mm -hmm. and not letting that wealth get in the way that then it then you then you can make a case for that yeah. But you have to kind of take into the totality of, of the scriptures and not just quote things out of context and, and proof text them. Mm -hmm. Speaking of um, making people uncomfortable, you're not going to like what I'm about to say. But no, no, go this, ahead. This, we're going to make people uncomfortable because we're going to go long. I know this is going to end up being <laughs> over an hour because I still have a lot of stuff to say. All right. But... Uh, hopefully it will be worth it and people can shut me off if they don't like that. But I want to, there's a lot that I want to say that I don't think has really been said before. And I'm like, I want to talk about some things. Um, maybe people haven't, maybe people have noticed, but I just have not, um, 
notice certain things. But I wanted to go ahead and talk about uh, this knowing, recognizing people by their fruit, right? I know, okay. I'm a fruit, but... Uh, <laughs> So it's here in Luke, uh, Luke 6, 43 and 44. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorns, nor are grapes picked from brambles. Here's something interesting. There is nothing in the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain about pampering church leaders. But there is something about holding them accountable. It's right here. It's also in Matthew 7, which is not part of our text, but it's the parallel. Watch out for false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are voracious wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Like holding religious leaders accountable for their actions, for their fruit, is literally in the Sermon on the Mount. Like how dare people say, oh, you can't hold people accountable. That is, it's, it's in there when mm. worshiping church leaders is not. Treating them like royalty is not, right? That is in there. Like it's in there so conveniently for me. It's like I snuck it in there. Like I, I don't even know if I, people can, like no one has brought out this text as far as I know to say this is where our priorities should be. Our priorities should not be flattering the ego of powerful men it should be holding them accountable that's what's in the sermon on the mount and what does he say is the way we will know a true prophet versus a false prophet it's by their fruits it's mm -hmm. not by their priesthood lineage it's not by their calling in the church it's not by their office in the church he doesn't say oh we'll just look on on churchofjesuschrist.org and look at the roster of the current quorum of the 12, and that's how you'll know. Hmm. He does not say that. He does not tie it to lineage. He does not tie it to, um, to calling. He ties it to the fruit. He invites us to examine everyone, okay, um, and hold church leaders accountable. Anyway, so I just wanted to make that one point. Uh, I wanted to talk a lot about nonviolence because there's nonviolence. A, a okay. couple of a couple of things here. There's there's sort of strategic nonviolence is that nonviolent strategies or tactics can be useful for change in the thing that you're trying to oppose, and that works. Doesn't always work, um, but there's also a sort of nonviolence that is a moral nonviolence that even if it doesn't work to make external change, what it does do is maintains your character. And if you can go through an awful situation and even die like Jesus did, mm -hmm. but maintain your character, then they didn't win on one level. Maybe they won by killing you, but they didn't win to drag you down to their level. Um, but I, And here's how, how Luke has it. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. To the person who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other as well. And from the person who takes away your coat, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks you and do not ask for your possessions back from the person who takes them away. Treat others in the same way that you would want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And Matthew has it worded differently. I might not look at that right now. 
But um, he also talks about um, retaliation. Eye for an eye is not what we're doing, right? So let and do not resist the the evildoer. But what's my point about this is there's some str- strategy here in um, in that when you look at each of these things, each of these strategic options are done or given to someone who has less systemic power, right? The Roman military could come and compel people to go a mile, right? Mm -hmm. That is what occupying military forces do. So you don't have the power to resist. If you resist, they'll kill you, right? If you're being sued, you're probably not in a position to win the suit. If you are literally going to lose the coat off your back, you probably don't have the resources, Mm -hmm. right? So... Um, and if someone is uh, able to strike you on the cheek, they probably have the power in this situation. So what do you do when you are disempowered? What do you do when you have these unfair structural imbalances? If you fight back, you'll probably get destroyed or killed. But what you can do is publicly shame your oppressor in certain ways. For example, um, if you look at the way Matthew has it, uh, well, let me just, now I'm going to read Matthew's version. This is Matthew 5, 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evildoer. But whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other to him as well. This likely could be a situation if someone is striking you on the right cheek, they're doing it backhanded. Mm-hmm. If, you're high, if, they're, if you're hitting someone with, with your right hand and you're hitting a right cheek, you are backhanding someone who's an inferior. But if you turn the other cheek... They're like, no, you're going to hit me again, but I'm going to reclaim a little bit of dignity by saying, now you're going to hit me as an equal, right? Mm. Fighting back might not work because you'll you'll get beaten or killed or whatever, but you can at least reclaim your dignity by embarrassing the other person, putting them in a compromising place of admitting that you're an equal or not hitting you again. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your coat also. If you're that poor that you are worried about that, you will literally be naked right there in the court. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You will embarrass someone on the steps of the court. Like, look how awful that is. They took away your uh, your tunic mm-hmm. and now just voluntarily give your undergarment as well and just be naked and show the world what they did to you because you're not going to be able to win, but you can win a moral victory here. If someone forces you to go one Roman mile, and this is a Latin loan word, million in, in the Greek New Testament, go with him too because now you've embarrassed this person, right? So I think there's a strategic piece to nonviolence where you reclaim a little bit of dignity. You reclaim a little bit of the upper hand. You have the moral upper hand and this is why nonviolence is so powerful because then it's real clear who the bad guy is like if you see two people fighting and they're balanced and they're both getting punches in you don't know who's who's the good guy you don't know who's the victim you know someone's just fighting back right you don't know what it starts but if someone is beating someone else and they do not fight back the the sympathy of the world will be on that person Right. Hmm. Like what's wrong here? And they will go and help that person. Right. If you if you go to a fight and you try to break it up, you don't know who you're supposed to help. Hmm. Who's the aggressor and who's not. And I think this is the real challenge when dealing with the leaders of the church who are aggressing against my people. It is very easy to aggress back 
But the real challenge is to um, to use Jesus' strategy here, take the upper hand, and let them hit you again. Let them blow the other half of your face off with that musket. And the world will know something is wrong here. Something is very, very wrong. Right? If it's like a, if we're both bouncing it back and forth, well, then it's kind of people will be justified. Like if we, um, uh, if we attack, quote, the author- general authorities, right? If we, we get our punches in too, then people are going to feel righteous in resisting us. They're like, well, they're just whatever. And I may be guilty of some of that myself, right? But, Jesus is calling me to a higher, higher, um, higher thing of maintaining my character because nothing the authorities can do to me can change my character unless I make a mistake. If I do everything right, they can do whatever they want to me. And I win if I do not compromise my own character. Hmm. So that is Jesus's lesson about what to do when there's a power imbalance. And of course, Gandhi learned from this. Dr. King learned from this. Um, Maybe Jesus would have different advice in a different environment, but he's speaking to people who have no power. They have no power. Like maybe if they had a fair fight, maybe he, I don't, I mean, I don't know, but this is, this is what you do when there's a significant power imbalance. Mm. Uh, Fighting back will just lead to almost being killed. So, That's not what we want. And I think a similar thing is true with the leaders of the church. They have near um, unlimited power, financial power, um, leadership power, policy power. Like I have no checks and balances on their power. I can speak the truth. Mm -hmm. But if they wanted to, I could be excommunicated without due process, Mm -hmm. without a public trial so that people know the truth of what happened, right? This mm-hmm. is there's uh, uh, well they 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 claim they don't do excommunications anymore they're they're member removals or whatever membership councils that. or whatever yeah but anyway my point is like I don't have the authority to go in there and uh, uh, hold anyone accountable in in any like fight way right I don't have that power the only power I have is to maintain my character which gets back to our lesson on Satan and shortcuts because violence to me is a shortcut. Like if, like I guarantee you, James, if I say, Hey James, I've, I've got this gun. I will kill you unless you give me $50. You're probably going to give me the $50, right? Yeah. My life is worth $50. Shoot. (laughs) But my point is like, I got what I wanted. Mm -hmm. Right. And maybe on one level you owe that to me or, or like it's right that you should give it to me. Right. So you can get, the right thing through violence, through a shortcut. Like mm-hmm. there's a bunch of stuff that we can go and and get it through violence. Um, and Jesus is teaching us, you know what? Maybe that's not the best shortcut because you might work. Violence works in the short run, but it doesn't work in the long run because you get cycles and cycles of violence and retaliation, which Jesus breaks here Um by by saying don't retaliate and uh he breaks the cycle of violence and and spiral of violence in the book of mormon when he appears in person to the nephites and lamanites and like hey we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do a start over here so that's what i wanted to say about i could probably ramble on about 
the power of nonviolence. Um, but yeah, Satan's plan of salvation was a shortcut. In, in mm. it literally was. But if we take shortcuts, we don't actually grow, uh, and we don't progress the way that we need to. Right. Uh, l- let me just talk about um, judgmentalism for for church leaders, because let's go back to Luke chapter six. For the measure you use will be the measure you receive, and there's non-judgmentalism stuff in, um, in uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in in Matthew as well, Mm -hmm. in Matthew seven. And people say, "Oh, Derek, you're judgmentalism. You're judgmental about the church leaders." But here's the thing: it doesn't say you can't use any feedback at all. What it says is the measure you use will be the measure you receive. So here's my problem with the church leaders. I'm not expecting them to be perfect, right? My problem isn't, oh, I was expecting them to be perfect and they're not living up to that. Look, I'm not perfect either. I'm not going to live up to perfection. What I'm expecting them to do is be accountable. That's different than being perfect. We need checks and balances. We need um, uh, measures in place where no one person can control everything, right? There's, I like accountability. I love being accountable, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not expecting anything from them that I don't expect people from me. I hold myself out as accountable to my values and to the people whom I have power over or whom I engage with. Like, I love being accountable. Like, I'm not going to be perfect, but I want to know when I'm wrong so I don't hurt people. Like, that's the difference. So I am not measuring the church leaders according to a different measure than I would be willing to take. I'll take it too. Make me accountable. I love being accountable. I am accountable, right? In my job, in my calling, in in, in almost everything in my life, if I do something wrong, there's going to be some uh, check on that power. So I am not being judgmentalism with, with the church leaders. I am measuring them according to the measure that I'm willing to receive. Let's talk also about nonviolence in Luke's uh, extended two-volume work. Mm-hmm. We've got at the crucifixion, Luke 23, verse 34 says, But Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they, do not, for they don't know what they're doing. Right? Father, forgive them. And then we also have this forgiveness in Acts 7, 60 with uh, Stephen in his martyrdom. He fell to his knees and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That should be our attitude towards our enemies, one of forgiveness, one of compassion, and even one of love. Love love your enemies. That's real hard, right? I will want to pause and say uh, this this verse in Luke 23, Father, forgive them for they know don't know what they're doing, um, is missing in a numerous important manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. It's present in some early ones, but it is quite likely that this was not an original um, part of the Gospel of, of Luke. So I've talked a lot. Is there anything you want to say? Well, I still have more. I know it's probably going to be like <laughs> another 10 minutes. I Seriously, it's going to be worth it, I hope. Another well, 10 minutes. Well, dude, you better take it then. We're already over an hour. You better just take it. Okay. So let's talk about this love for um, neighbor and love for God. We saw that how they intersected and how they, they supported one another with the Sabbath observance, right? How Sabbath could be construed as a commandment towards God, but Healing someone is an expression of love for neighbor, and they don't actually conflict. Uh, let's talk about this balance. Oaks wants to balance 
love for God and love for neighbor. And I'm like, that is really weird because two good things don't compete with each other. <laughs> like he's here's Oaks has a straw man of my position. He's acting as though I'm saying, oh, hey, everyone, if you love me, you'll let me sin. That is not what I'm saying. That is never what I'm saying. I'm saying love between two men, two women is no more sin than between a man and a woman. Those are morally and ethically indistinguishable. And only prejudice and discrimination even imagines there's any kind of difference, right? So I'm not saying, okay, excuse my sin a little bit. Let me get away with a little sin. If you love me, you'll let me sin. I have never said that and I never will. I have never tried to justify sin. What I'm saying is, going back to Woodruff, this is line upon line. We as a people did not answer this question in the 1830s or 40s. People asked, act like we've got it all figured out and we know based on what Joseph taught in the 1830s and 40s, this is how sealing works. You can't seal a man and a man. It's all finalized. It's been asked and answered. Like, no, it hasn't. This hasn't come up until now, until my lifetime, right? We have never let this have a fair hearing. We have never gone to the Lord with real intent, uh, by we, I mean the leaders of the church, with real intent on this issue. This is an open question. I'm serious. Like, we have no canonized scripture, that addresses this. We have nothing that has been accepted by the common consent of the church. We have individual mm -hmm. ch church leaders saying stuff, but that does not constitute doctrine. If they want to add doctrine, it needs to be done by the prophet, it needs to be announced and presented to the church, and it needs to be accepted by the common consent of the church. That's how we do things in a church with order. If any random thing a general authority say, says is doctrine, that's not order. That is popcorn. Right. This is not Ooh. the church of popcorn. This is the Ooh. church of order. Dang, Derek. <laughs> anyway, the heat, man. I was supposed to be talking about love it. for God and love for neighbor. And I didn't even look at the nah, text. Bring the heat, my guy. Bring the heat. I didn't even mention the text that I'm supposed to be talking about. It's this one. It says, so then if you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Well, let me pause and say this is the altar of the temple. This is an ordinance. This is about your commandment bet between you and God, right? God has commanded certain uh, sacrifices of, of animals and also grain and fruits and other things. You take these to the altar. But Jesus teaches here, something can pri get prioritized over that. If you remember that your brother has something ag against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. That is, put God on hold, right? You need to put God on hold, not forever, but just temporarily. First, go reconcile, be, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your gift, which means you don't leave your gift, um, but you also don't forget about your love for, for, for neighbor. When love for neighbor is not there, it interferes with love for God. We see this in 1 John 4. How can you say you love God and hate your neighbor? Mm. Right? Mm. I don't know why Oaks is imagining that there is a conflict between them. Because Jesus says, what you do to the least of these, you did to me. Hello, that is literally equating them. What you do to your neighbor is what you do 
to God. So how dare you say, oh, you got to balance them. And we, we've got to balance law with love. And that means you can kind of love your gay friend, but you got to give him a little spanking here and there. No, no. Send that idea back to the hell that it came no. from. Yes, sir. Oh, Derek, you are spitting heat, man. Send I, I, that back to the hell it came no. from. It is not in our scriptures. It is not in our doctrine. And it is not at all remotely coherent with the fundamental truth of the plan of salvation that we are children of God. We are offspring of God. What you do to to us is what you do to God. We're the same species on one level, right? There's, there should be no substantial difference between love for God and love for neighbor when you took the, take this script, the witness of Scripture into account. Oaks is only trying to score a point by saying, oh, don't be too nice to the gays because love for God is more important. And he is completely missing that I'm not asking people to, to say, well, let us sin. I'm not asking people to say violate God's laws in order to include me or in order to love me. I'm saying that if you truly love God— then you're going to love the gays whom God created. And if you love the gays whom God created, then you're going to love God. They they do not conflict, right? Any more than than straight marriage conflicts with like if someone says, "Oh, Derek, do you support your 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 friend's straight marriage?" I'm like, "Yeah, there's no conflict between supporting my straight marriage friends and love for God," right? We have imagined that there that there's something wrong with gays and there isn't and there's no evidence of any commandment that would be covered by by Oaks's. But anyway, here's the other thing is it decenters the temple. It decenters ordinances. He's saying uh, Jesus is saying leave your gift at the altar. Decenter the temple when you got to go take care of the one in need, right? Go back to Matthew 25. It's not, did you check off your ordinances? Did you check off your temple things? Did you do the covenant path? No, it's did you feed people? Did you visit people in prison? Did Mm -hmm. you take care of the sick? Mm -hmm. Did you Mm -hmm. take care of the lonely, right? And Mm -hmm. the stranger, the outsider. There's nothing about ordinances. There's nothing about checklist. Like all that other ordinancey, checklisty stuff you can make up in the millennium or in the spirit world or whatever. I mean, yeah, go ahead and still do it if you can in this life, but that's not the priority. Our culture mm-hmm. um, focuses too much on on those things. Um, and I just want to – there's other stuff I could say, but I'm going to start closing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, about to say, we are – we are over, yeah, but I, like, know, I, know. I think everybody's going to enjoy it. Hopefully, and, and they can turn me off if they want to, right? They can have the magic oaks button that silences Derek. <laughs> Damn. Um, <laughs> Not the magic oaks button. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people can do do the oaks button and turn me off. Um, I mean, uh, well, anyway. So, yeah, let's get back to this. It's all about ch- ch- Christianity rather than churchianity. Like, Let's prioritize what Jesus prioritized. Let's deprioritize what Jesus deprioritized. Some of the, there's some really good things that need to be done, but they're not central. We have majored in the minors and minored in the majors in our church for way too long, focused on on stuff that is good, but it's not best. Even Oaks had that good, better, best thing, right? So let's focus on what's best. Let's use Jesus' words here 
to come to a, 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 a repentance, get get blessings, comfort, and guidance about how to live in this world. So I'm going to stop there. All right. Sounds good to me, friend. It was heat, though, man. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Like, whoo. Oh, Derek, you really brought it today, man. I am so proud of you. And I oh, love just I'm so proud of you, too. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Thank you, my friend. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of criminal. We got to find just another way to like get more of your content out there and just otherwise because i don't know the podcast medium i think suits you very well but i think we need more ways to just get you out there right Um, people don't have hour-long attention spans there's got to be a way of like distilling what i say into some little nugget and and whatever i don't know i mean you could always write you could always write a book Derek. and if you don't want to write a book we'll just give you there's always the class no that course that i'm gonna do i don't want to do a course though what what do you want to do Derek? tell me what you want to do i just want to well what i really want to do is stay at home study the new testament all day and not have to deal with all this stuff okay see see Derek, this is the problem right here like you always talking about why people ain't inviting you to do stuff writing chapters in books or whatever my guy you got to put yourself out there okay 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 fine this is not enough right people that listen to you know they know how smart you are they know how brilliant you are and you know, they know. Well, I, you know, hold, hold, this- hold up. I don't want to be told I'm smart. I want to be told that I point people to Jesus. You it's do not, point people to Jesus. It's not about how smart I am. Whatever. You know what I'm trying to say. Yes. You point people to Jesus and you do it better than most of the people out there. But mm. people don't know that if the podcast is all you do, my friend. No, fine. Okay. I'm going to have to like, I don't know. Maybe you're going to have to use some nonviolent strategy to get me to do what you want. <laughs> All right, all right. Okay. All right. Well, we'll right. figure something out. Let's ask the fans what I can do, um, or what we can do. Right. This is a team, so we'll see. That. See. Okay. I'll talk later. All right. Bye bye. <laughs> oh wait, we need to like do our closing stuff. <laughs> yeah. The the, the the mics are still on, but um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's like those infomercials, where- but wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. Yes, we are still on. Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Also on Twitter and Instagram at BTBLDS. Uh, Brother Jones has this uh, racial justice in the church course at, what is the address? Uh, BTBacademy.thinkific.com. I will make sure to put it in the notes. BTBacademy.thinkific.com. Okay. Um, Check that out. Um, Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think that is everything. I don't, is there anything else we need to put folks on to? Is there, I don't think there's events or anything that we got to put folks on to. I mean, I can always edit it in. So if there's nothing else, Till we meet again next week, thank you for joining us. Okay, thank you for joining us. Bye-bye, everyone, and more jokes next week. Bye.